Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak in it and through it, that you inspired this portion of scripture, not just for the benefit of the people of Israel, that they might know something of their history, but that so that we might understand something of our own spiritual biography, namely as being heirs of the kingdom through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the son of Israel. So this is our story too, and we thank you for it. We thank you for the story of Joseph that we've been considering these number of weeks, and we pray that you will bless us in these remaining three sermons or so as we round off this portion of your word, that you would indelibly impress upon us lasting lessons of your faithfulness and our call to trust you in the darkness as you are at work in the messiness of our lives, doing incalculable good for us even when we can't understand what you're doing. We thank you that behind every providence that might be frowning to us hides a smiling face and that you are working out your purposes for our good and our glory. Do that this morning in this time in your word together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you knew that you only had a short time left to live and you were like Jacob on your deathbed, how would you want to spend some of those remaining moments? Well, surely you would like to spend them a lot like Jacob spent his, right? If you had the privilege of living into an old age and had your children and grandchildren still with you, you would want them surely to be around you, to bless them, to speak words of life to them, to encourage them. And that's what we find Jacob doing in the remaining moments of his life. How different this is from a man whom John Grisham, author, wrote about in his book, The Testament. I've used this illustration before, but it's been a while. Here's a story of another man who found himself on his own deathbed, and he writes the following words. Down to the last day, even the last hour now, I am an old man, lonely and unloved, sick and hurting and tired of living. I am ready for the hereafter. It has to be better than this. I own the tall glass building in which I sit, 97% of the company housed in it, below me and the land around it, half a mile in three directions, and 2,000 people who work here and the other 20,000 who do not. And I own the pipeline under the land that brings gas to the buildings from my fields in Texas, and I own the utility lines that deliver electricity, and I lease the satellite unseen miles above by which I once barked commands to my empire flung far around the world. My assets exceed $11 billion. I own silver in Nevada and copper in Montana, coffee in Kenya, coal in Angola, rubber in Malaysia, and natural gas in Texas, and crude oil in Indonesia and steel in China. My company owns companies that produce electricity and make computers and build dams and print paperbacks and broadcast signals to my satellite. I have subsidiaries with divisions in more countries than anyone can find. I once owned all the appropriate toys, the yachts, the jets, and blondes, the homes in Europe, farms in Argentina, an island in the Pacific, thoroughbreds, even a hockey team. But I've grown too old for toys. The money is the root of my misery. I had three families, three ex-wives who bore seven children, six of whom are still alive and doing all they can to torment me. To the best of my knowledge, I fathered all seven and buried one. I should say his mother buried him. I was out of the country. I'm estranged from all the wives and all the children. They were, they're gathering here today because I'm dying, and it's time to divide the money. You know, that story sounds hopeless, but you know what? It's not. The story of Jacob shows that a man who finds himself even in this condition has hope. There's grace even for this guy. 
because there's grace for Jacob. Jacob is more like this man than unlike this man. It's never too late. And the story of Jacob shows that. You know, we can hear the old Henry Chapin song, Cats in the Cradle, which you haven't heard in a while. You should listen to it, especially if you're a dad. It'll make you sufficiently depressed. But the last verse, you remember the story that he tells throughout that song about his young boy being born and then his boy turning 10 and having a birthday and then his boy going away to college and all the while he's too busy to pay attention to his boy. He's not there at the birth. He's too busy to throw the ball that he just got for his 10th birthday. He's interested in what he's going on at college, but by that point the boy's no longer really interested in him. He just wants the car keys so he can go out for the evening. And then the concluding verse we read, I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I could find the time. You see, the new job's a hassle, and the kids have the flu. But it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. And we might think, well, that's a hopeless situation. But it's not a hopeless situation. There's grace for the derelict dads. There's grace for the millionaires who've blown it all and wasted the years of their life. Jacob spends his last days blessing his family. Blessing is mentioned six times in this chapter. It's the predominant theme. It's, and the way that Jacob is spending his last days reminds us of the commentary that God gives over our lives. You know, when God puts Jacob in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, you know, he doesn't mention all the ways that Jacob blew it in his life. His commentary isn't on the favoritism and the dysfunction and the sin and the deceit and the pride that so characterized Jacob's life. Rather, the writer to the Hebrews commentary, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, placing Jacob in the hall of faith is the following in Hebrews eleven twenty one. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. That's God's commentary on Jacob's life. Because by grace, he gets it right at the end. He spends his final days blessing Joseph and his sons, bowing as a worshiper of God over the head of his staff. So, brothers and sisters, as we meditate on this text this morning in Genesis 48, let's remember that the portrait that we have of Jacob blessing his sons in this passage is a portrait of the way that God blesses us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Three ways that God blesses us as it, is sho- as it shows up in the blessing of Jacob to his son and grandsons. Here's the first way that God blesses us. His love secures our adoption. His love secures our adoption. Now, the first part of this chapter in the first 14 verses, Jacob is very concerned about what's going to happen to his grandsons. Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Will they be lost 
to the covenant that God has made with Israel since they're not born of pure Jewish stock. They were born in Egypt of an Egyptian woman. So are they going to be lost to the covenant promises? No, since Jacob adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. That's what he's doing in these first 14 verses. An adoption ritual is taking place. How do you, where do we see that? Look at verse 5, where Jacob says, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. He says, well, of course they're yours. They're your grandchildren. Wait, keep reading. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. In other words, he says, as my biological sons are Reuben and Simeon, so will be Ephraim and Manasseh, my grandsons. In other words, I'm going to treat my grandsons like they're my sons. So we might think it somewhat weird that Jacob tells Joseph in verses 3 and 4 a little bit of a summary of God's promise to him. Look at those verses again. It says in verse 3, And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said, "Be fruit, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I'll make you a company of peoples and give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. In other words, restating what God had promised to Isaac and to Abraham. He now promised to Jacob and he's saying it to Joseph. But why is he telling Joseph this? Because in an adoption ritual, like in the, in, the, in the ancient Near East, like this is taking place, the qualifications of the one who is going to adopt have to be stated. And so he states them. He says that God has made promises to me that he's going to make me fruitful and multiply me into a great nation. Then he identifies those who are being adopted in verses 8 and 9 when he says, Look at at verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. And then he reinforces the blessing and the declaration in verse 10. As he says, Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them, and embraced them. And then in verse 12, Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Now, these boys are 20 years old now. They're probably not sitting on the 147-year-old man's knees. What's happening is they've kneeled down next to Jacob while he's on his bed and he has blessed them. He has adopted them. He has told Joseph that the promise is going to continue and that they are going to be a part of the fulfillment of that promise, as you see in verses, verse, let's look at verse uh, 19. But his father refused and said, I know my son, I know. But he, talking about Manasseh, shall become a people and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he's promising that they will be blessed in such a way as they will be a part of the prospering of the nation of Israel. And so we see this adoption take place. And this adoption mirrors the way God adopts us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps never you, you haven't thought about that in a while, but as we thought about this morning, the doctrine of justification, that we're declared righteous by God, 
and the doctrine of sanctification, that God is working in us to make us more like Jesus, we might think that's pretty much all salvation is, right? It's, it's just God making us right with him and then making us more like him. That's say, No, that's all a means to a greater reality, namely adoption as his children. Romans 8, chapter 15, or verse, verse 15, says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, for you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, we are to God the way Jacob is to his grandsons. His grandsons have no right to this access. And yet through the mercy of God and the blessing of Jacob, they are brought into the family of God. So, so, so the same way we are in Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Why? Verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, redemption, justification, they all serve adoption. Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. One more text. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. See, all of God's purposes of salvation are channeled in the direction of adoption. This is why J.I. Packer, in his famous book, Knowing God, writes this incredible paragraph. He says, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification, because of the richness of the relationship with God that it begins. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge, justification, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father, adoption, is a greater. This is why John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Believer this morning, brother or sister, that's who you are. Your identity is not just justified sinner or sanctified saint. Your identity is child of God. Adopted child of God. Given all the status and privileges and access to the Father that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, enjoys. That is us. What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And if you're not a child of God this morning, this is how you can get in on becoming a child of God. See, there is a sense in which God is the Father of everyone. The Bible speaks of that. But not in a salvific way, as a creator way. See, far more the Bible speaks of fatherhood, the fatherhood of God as being a privilege of those who are in Christ, the Son of God. So if you're here this morning and you feel like a lost child, your Father is calling you home, and He will receive you if you come to Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. In repentant faith, childlike trust, He will receive you. Call out to Him. And this is why adoption and foster care are such beautiful pictures. This is why 
when our church does things like this or when other Christians involve themselves in such um, exercises, it is so like God to adopt those who are not his own, to care for children who are outside of his own immediate Trinitarian family. So that's the first one. His love secures our adoption. Number two, his grace contradicts our expectations. His grace contradicts our expectations. Now, we see this in verses 17 through 22, where Joseph is attempting to correct his father on how he is blessing his sons. Look at verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, the younger son, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. In verse 21, or verse 20, So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. See, this contradicts our expectations. This contradict, contradicts a lot of expectations in the book of Genesis because God's always doing this. We think that the right hand, which is the hand of blessing, should go on the firstborn, not the younger son. And yet God over and over and over again in the book of Genesis contradicts our expectation by giving the blessing to the younger over against the older. Both Isaac and Jacob were second-born sons of their fathers, and they were the ones that were blessed instead of their brothers. Birth order is not the deciding factor for God. Why? Because his promise is established by his purpose, not ours. We can have, Jacob has a, or Joseph has a wonderful plan for the lives of his children that God does not agree with. He has a wonderful purpose in mind. He says, it's going to be Manasseh. It's not going to be Ephraim. Manasseh's first. This is the way it's supposed to go. That's the birth order. And God says, nope. My blessing is a matter of election and grace. And that's how I run the world. I have my own agenda that does not necessarily follow the normal flow, expected patterns, or social norms. I do things my way. That's God. And this, lest we think this is an isolated incident in the way God deals with people, it runs right through the fabric of the Bible. If you do not understand the sovereignty of God in election, you can't make sense of everything God's doing in the Bible. And so it's not surprising to us that if we know the Old Testament, we know how God has worked, that we come to the New Testament and we read the following coming off the lips of our Savior Jesus. John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Get that order. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Who are the people that come to Jesus? The ones whom the Father has given to Jesus. That's election. That's sovereign grace. Or Jesus in John 10, 26 says, 
you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. He doesn't say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe, although that's true. But he says, the reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. My sheep believe. Who are sheep? People whom the Father has given to the Son. This is why John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus couldn't say it any clearer. You did not choose me, but I chose you. End of debate. We may not understand it, but we can't say it's not in the Bible. Acts chapter 13, verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? The people who heard and received and glorified the word of God. How'd they do that? Because God had appointed them beforehand to respond that way. This is election. This is grace. And what is the purpose of this doctrine? To rip us out of the center of the universe, to give all glory and honor and praise to God, and to remove any grounds from us for boasting in ourselves. This is why 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26-29, Paul puts it this way. He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose, he says it three times, God chose, God chose, God chose. 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why, God, why'd you choose? Why'd you choose people this way? Why'd you choose the nobodies? Why'd you pass over the somebodies? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that no human being might be able to say, you know why I'm saved? Because I grew up in a good Christian family. You know why I'm saved? Because I'm more spiritually minded than they are. You know why I'm saved? Because I have a better spiritual pedigree. You know why I'm saved? Because I had an inclination to read the Bible. You know why I'm saved? Because I attended church. You know, God might have used all those means, but do you know who gave you the desire to do any of those things? God himself. So it all goes to God. All the credit goes to God, which is why God can save a kid out of a Christian family and the Christian family get no credit. And why God can save a kid out of a pagan environment, never been to church in his life, and get no credit. They don't get any credit. God gets all the credit. This is why his grace contradicts our expectations. Here's how Charles Spurgeon put it in his own inimitable way. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born because he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could have found any reason in myself why he should have ever loved me. So I am forced to accept this great biblical doctrine, end quote. That's why. Amen. Praise his name. His grace contradicts our expectations. Number three, and finally, his promise trumps our performance. I know trumps is not a very good verb to use these days, but I'm going to use it anyway. 
All right. So his grace trumps our performance. Here's the good news. Look at verses 15 and 16. Jacob's own testimony as he blesses Joseph. He says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Notice his testimony about God. The God before whom my father and my grandfather walked, who were sinful men, but faith was present in those men. And the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, there's Jacob's testimony. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. So he thinks back as a 147-year-old man, and he said, you know what's been true of me? God's been my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. No matter what he did or what he failed to do, Jacob understood that God's purpose had prevailed in his life. No matter how much Jacob lied and deceived and created havoc in his life, and he did, for sure, he still could not thwart God's plan for his life, that he would be a forerunner and an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was not going to change God's purpose. I mean, think about this. I, I love reading the life of Jacob and meditating on his life and thinking about God's promise always being more powerful than our performance. When God, God's promise and purpose for Jacob could not be overcome by Jacob's sinfulness. I mean, just think about Jacob's past. Let me give you a survey. There was infighting and favoritism with his parents. Jacob was a kind of a mama's boy, and Esau would have been on Duck Dynasty. Right? I mean, he's a man's man. Leaves the cave, kills something, and drags it home. But there's this wicked, awful favoritism in their family, and just, it's nasty to read about. And then... The great deceiver Jacob steals the birthright from his brother Esau to achieve what God had already promised him. He didn't believe God. He took it into his own hands to try to secure what God already said was his. And then the deceiver gets deceived as he grows up and gets ready to get married and he goes to Laban's house and he's tricked into marrying Leah, the girl he really doesn't want to marry, the sister who he worked seven years to marry Rachel, and then Laban tricks him and he comes home on the, finds out the next, de next morning that, behold, it's Leah, it's not Rachel. And then he works another seven years, a total of 14, to marry the girl he really wanted to marry. And then he's got two wives, which is further dysfunctionality. It's one too many, at least at one time. So he's married to two women, carrying on a lot of that dysfunctionality that was present in his own home. 
And he's away, remember, he's away when his mother dies, Rachel, or not Rachel, Sarah, no, not Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, yes. Get it right, Mark. So he has two wives, two concubines, and he ends up having 13 kids, 12 boys and one girl. And at this point, we hear about it in this chapter that his wife, his Rachel's dead. Right. So this is just a wreck of a life. It's a wreck of a family. And then his family further disintegrates into chaos and anarchy. I don't have to take you to the other parts of Genesis, right? Remember his one daughter, Dinah, is a rape victim. And then his brothers get so angry that they go and slaughter a town. That's not a good pedigree. I mean, this is in Jacob's family. And then his oldest son is so godless that God kills his two sons. And then Reuben sleeps with one of his concubines. And then he shows favoritism toward Joseph, which results in a complete breakdown of his family, where his brothers sell Joseph into slavery to get rid of him. And then Jacob has to go through agony with thinking that Joseph is dead because that's what his sons told him. And then additionally, a famine has come, and he's had to give up his new favorite Benjamin in the process to go rescue another one of his other sons, Simeon, who has been left in Egypt. Then he's got to be uprooted at his old age and moved into a foreign land. God has been my shepherd all my life. Isn't that amazing? That after all that junk, God didn't disown him. God pursued him. God loved him. God redeemed him. And God shepherded him all of his life, even down to his old age. Now, he's saying this 17 years after he's arrived in Egypt. So God has done some work in this decade and a half. In these latter days of his life, in these twilight years, God has been working on Jacob. And his conclusion is a right one, that God has been his shepherd. And so we come to Jesus. I think picking up this analogy here of a shepherd, is no, it's no stretch to take it to our Lord Jesus. Because when Jesus came, remember, he identified himself as the good shepherd in John chapter 10. And the New Testament describes Jesus as the great shepherd in Hebrews 13 and as the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5.4. So this is a clear declaration because guess who was the shepherd in the Old Testament? It was the Lord and the Lord alone was the capital S shepherd. But when Jesus comes along and says... I'm the good shepherd. And when the New Testament writes of him as the great shepherd and the chief shepherd, then he is identifying himself with the Lord himself. And he's saying, I'm God. The Lord is my shepherd. Means Jesus is my shepherd. And what does this good shepherd do? Well, according to John chapter 10, verse 11, he lays his life down for the sheep. And if you're his sheep this morning... It's because he laid his life down for you. And what's our response? What's our response to our shepherd? It should be the response that Jacob had. It should be worship. 
It should be obedience. John chapter 10, verse 27 through 30 tells us our response. My, tells us my, our response. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Listen, our righteous walk with Jesus is one of the key evidences that we belong to the Good Shepherd. We are not saved by our righteous walk, but we do give evidence that God has saved us by our righteous walk. And that doesn't mean perfectly righteous, as Jacob's life can well testify. And if you are following Jesus as your shepherd, you can rest assured that God will keep you. He will never let you go. Again, John chapter 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life, that is my sheep, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand, even though we try to get out of it sometimes, like Jacob did. Jacob tried to get out of the hands of his good shepherd, and his good shepherd was having none of it. With his rod and his staff, he led Jacob. And even though Jacob is now walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he doesn't fear any evil because the Lord is with him. Jesus said again in John chapter 10, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So that's where we conclude this morning as we've looked at the blessing in this chapter. His love secures our adoption. His grace contradicts our expectations. And his promise trumps our performance. So when we read the story of Jacob and we meditate on where he is in the last days of his life, we should say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being our shepherd. Thank you for your constant, persistent, unrelenting care for us as your sheep. Thank you that you lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake, that you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies and our cup. You, you anoint our head with oil and our cup overflows. Thank you that we can rest in the promise that surely goodness and mercy will follow us, will pursue us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There is nothing that can cause us to be snatched out of your hand if we are in your hand. And we thank you for the hope that this gives us as we gaze at the life of Jacob and see you doing just that in his life. We praise you, we bless you, we rise now to celebrate the grace that you have given us in Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.